right, this is Jim Ketting, that Bond guy, and I'm real excited uh, to tell you about our guest today, Dr. Lawrence Birch. Uh, Dr. Lawrence Birch is kind of a Renaissance man, has some really interesting wisdom that he can give us from the Boy Scouts, and then on to his studies as an engineer, and then getting invited to do some uh, covert ops around the world and then going to work for NASA, uh, solving some pretty complex problems for them, and then uh, became a physician. And after becoming a physician, uh, was the head of medical, uh, the chief medical officer over at St. Anthony's, and then retired and spends a lot of time working with students. He has uh, helped students win several awards, including the Boeing Glider Competition, which is a competition of about 150 high schools around St. Louis, and uh, his high schools are always number one and two, and the Trey Boucher Competition, and just all sorts of cool things that he does. So help me welcome Larry to our podcast, and we're going to start off early on when you were a Boy Scout. Now, the Boy Scouts are very relevant to you. Tell me a little bit about, you know, how old were you when you got started in the Boy Scouts? Well, the, the Boy Scouts, uh, as it turns out, are probably the most formative force in my life, actually. Um, I started as a Cub Scout probably at around age nine. And I remember Mrs. Brooks was the, uh, the den mother and this, after the Cub Scouts, we went into the Boy Scouts, and um, then at uh, in summer camp, uh, the first time we went to summer camp was in 1952, and uh, got called out for the Order of the Arrow, and um, subsequently became a Brotherhood and vigil member of the Order of the Arrow, and then became an Eagle Scout as well. Worked at the Boy Scout camp, uh, as a various positions, uh, starting off as a cook's assistant, which uh, translates into dishwasher, uh, and then the truck driver and uh, maintenance guy, and then the field sports director, and um, ultimately ended up as the assistant camp director. Now, something about 17 years old, you were telling me was a very important moment in your life and it kind of focused your direction on where you wanted to head into and what you yep. wanted to do and kind of your career. What happened in uh, 1957? Well, it seems it was in October of 57 is when uh, um, Russia launched the first Sputnik and initiated the space race. And at that time I was probably in the, uh, either a junior, probably a junior in high school and, but that was kind of a galvanizing moment. That was, that was the moment that I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an, a space engineer. I wanted to work in that field of helping America win the space race. And from that point on, most of my endeavors in school were directed in that direction so that I could participate in that. So there's a lot of engineering positions in NASA and mm -hmm. you could have done physics, aerospace, all sorts of different types of engineering. Where did you choose to fit? 
Well, the, the interesting thing about the, the space race was, especially the going to the moon part, was that um, there was no handbook on how to do it because it hadn't been done before. I mean, there were a lot of handbooks on how to build a bridge, uh, that sort of thing, but no one had gone to the moon. So there, there were a lot of engineers in the, in the conventional sense, and there were a lot of, of um, uh, sort of primary scientists type people, um, more basic science type people, and that's where I kind of fit in. I, was, I got my degree um, in physical chemistry with the emphasis on thermodynamics or heat flow, and um, that, was, that was just kind of really critical in, in the um, evaluation of uh, the design for the Saturn V and the re-entry vehicles and all the rest of that. Yeah, there's a lot of heat going on, <laughs> taking yes. off and, and re-entry there. Yes, there is. So is that, a, is that a chemistry degree, or did you get your PhD in chemistry? Well, or it's, they call it physical chemistry or chemical physics, or, you know, it's six of one, half dozen of the other, but basically it's in thermodynamics is what it is. So thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. you, so if I asked you all sorts of questions about fire, you would, you would have an answer for it. Fire is, uh, fire is the basis, yes. It's, it's thermodynamics is Greek for heat flow, movement of heat from one place to another place. Okay. That's what it's all about. And even though it may sound kind of simple to begin with, trust me, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So when you when you got uh, you you went through uh, got your bachelor's and then you went on to grad school. Where did you where did you get your bachelor's and your uh, well a doctorate? Got the the bachelor's was a B.S. in chemistry. That's the A.C.S. or American Chemical Society degree. I don't even know if it exists anymore, but it required a lot of emphasis on on chemistry courses to the point where you were taking 21 hours a semester and then two summer schools in order to finish it in four years. And uh, that was at St. Louis University. And then after a brief hiatus, I went on to graduate school and got the uh, PhD in, um, in the chemical physics or physical chemistry, depending on what you want to call it. And because of your engineering background and your background and some of the skill sets that you learned in the Boy Scouts, you had uh, something after you graduated where we went into some covert ops, and I'm going to kind of foreshadow it there and just kind of leave it there so our listeners will come back to that and talk about it a little bit later. That, that was the hiatus I was talking about. That was, that was the hiatus, but right. we'll, we'll come back to that point. Right. So you go on, you get your graduate degree, then you start working for... NASA in what year? Huntsville, Alabama, 1967. Okay, so mm -hmm. 1967, and have we put a person on the moon yet? No, no. Okay. As a matter of fact, the, the Saturn V had not even flown yet. Um, the, the first manned mission to the moon to go around it but not actually land on it, I think, if memory serves, was Apollo 10. Apollo 11 is the first one that actually landed a man on the moon. And of course, everybody knows about Apollo 13. They made a movie about that. Make one mistake, and they gotta make a movie about it. <laughs> That's right, that's right. 
Well, uh, so in, in working there, what was your, tell me about like your first day on the job. What was that like, you know, going there? There's probably uh, one or two engineers there, right? Well, there were, there were in, in Huntsville alone, um, there were many, many buildings full of engineers. The, the building I worked in was called the HIC, Huntsville Industrial Complex. And in that one building alone, which was a converted cotton warehouse, there were 3,500 engineers. Holy cow. In one building. And there were buildings like this for, for outfits like uh, Rocketdyne and uh, uh, North American and uh, Boeing. And they're just every, every one of these aerospace things had their own presence there, their own building with literally hundreds if not thousands of engineers. So you had Northrop Grumman and Lockheed and a whole bunch and yes. uh, uh, McDonnell Douglas at the time. Yep. Right. So and everybody had a everybody had a part. Um, the the design of the the Saturn V itself was uh, different companies did different parts and then Boeing of course had the overall integration of to make sure all the parts fit together. And um, so that, that's, um, and, that and of course you got to remember that Huntsville, okay, mm -hmm. was only one part, but there were also a presence in Houston. Oh yeah. Um, huge presence in that launch facility down there. So, um, I mean, th this was massive beyond what most people can't even imagine as right. far as the accumulation or aggregation of engineering talent. Never in the history of the world had that ever happened before. Yeah, and you guys were mostly working with, I mean, you didn't have the computers back then, so a lot of the math and yeah. the things you were working with were slide rules and uh, uh, just thinking through problems. Well, there were, there were computers, but they were massive, and there weren't very many of them and you had to requisition time, and you had to type up your own code and programs and then take them there at the appropriate time and run your, run your program and then get your results on the printer and go home. Um, and most of the time, it was easier to just do it by hand using a slide rule. The computer stuff was basically relegated to uh, complicated, and um, iterative processes that would take an immense amount of time, the kind of thing that computers do best. Well, what was the first project or what was the first problem they got, gave you to solve? Well, the, the first pro, um, it's kind of interesting because you, you, we went in there and I went in there and, uh, you know, kind of the fresh off the boat type thing. and. Uh -huh. uh, uh, they said, okay, you're, you're going to go over to the uh, aerophysics division of the thermal analysis group or whatever. And they said, it's like 16 bays down, four bays over to the <laughs> left, <laughs> because that's all there were, were just bay after bay as far as the eye could see. And they were each numbered. And uh, so that it was like, you know, street signs. <laughs> just walk down the bay. Go to B4, take a left, go to F16, and you're there, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And uh, met, the, uh, met the lead engineer there, and he was saying, he said, we've got, we've got a number of problems here we've got to look at. He says, uh, 
he gave me a little list of them, a little pamphlet describing each one. He says, anything here appeal to you? He said, <laughs> he said we've got to get them all done, but you know, the sooner we get on it, the better. And, and there were a couple things there that were kind of interesting. And this, this one thing was the very first problem was a thing called the radiation hump. And it turns out that in a, a flight of an unmanned Saturn V, that there were sensors that were reading uh, this spike in radiation heat, radiative heat that wasn't predicted and was completely unexpected. And they didn't know what caused it and they didn't know if it were gonna be dangerous or not, mm -hmm. but it appeared on four or five different sensors. So it was not an, an anomaly, it was real. But the question is why was it there? So that was the first one. So I had, uh, myself and a couple of engineers and a, and a guy called the, um, um, what was he called, an engineering aide. Mm -hmm. And you'd have a little, your little team and you just kind of got down to it. And the first part is sitting down and uh, getting out the pencil and paper and trying to identify the factors that may contribute to this particular problem. And then after you think you have a handle on the thing, then put together something that, that um, a program that would respond to what you think is happening and see if you get the radiation hump uh -huh. revisited. And as it turns out, it, uh, the radiation hump turned out to be a, a combination or a, a result of an expanding rocket plume at the base where the view factor to the spots on the side of the vehicle were exposed to more and more view of this expanding hot plume. And then on top of that, you had the expanding hot plume getting less and less dense as the atmosphere got thinner and thinner. So initially you had a, a fairly sharp rise because of the increasing view factor. And then you had a diminishing because of the, um, the plume getting thinner and thinner and having less uh, radiative particles in it to contribute heat. So you got this nice little hump and it happened exactly where it was supposed to happen and just about as high it was supposed to happen. So it was empirically predictable. So it, it wasn't gonna cause the rocket to blow up? It or? was not gonna cause it to blow up and it wasn't gonna get any worse. Okay. So that was your first problem. That was the then first after, problem. After you solve that, then did we get to more complicated problems or what was the next well, other a, cool one you well, look I don't on? actually remember. There's a list of about, I don't know, 26 different things that I worked on. Um, some of them were really pretty simple and some of them were much more difficult. One of the more difficult ones had to do with the, um, um, well, to set the, the groundwork is that back then computer time was very, very expensive. And anybody who could come up with a shortcut to do a particular job that would cut computer time down, uh, that was the golden boy, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, they loved those people because they saved them lots of money and lots of time. Uh, there was an interesting thing about the about the various subsets of workers there was, if you had a project and it was supposed to be done at, by a certain date, especially in the construction part, that for every day it was early, that 
you got $10,000. For every day it was late, you were fined $10,000. Oh, wow. So there was a lot of weekend uh, overtime going on in some instances. So there was a lot of incentive to get things done on time and, and have things ready to go. But in any event, the, the, the idea of the computer time and cutting it down, of course, helps all this, you know, having things done on time. And there, were, there was, of course, a, a rigorous way to calculate the heat flux to a particular spot, which is very complicated and time-consuming. And if you could put together uh, an algorithm that would duplicate what the rigorous calculation did, but with far fewer calculations and do it in much faster shape, that would be a very good thing. And that was um, one of the projects was to try to put together a, a, an algorithm that would faithfully reproduce the heat flux to a particular area on the vehicle with a high degree of accuracy, but not using the entirely rigorous route, but going to an algorithm that did contain the pertinent factors that contributed to the heat transfer, and then approximations of various and sundry other things that after it was all put together that it, you turn the crank and the numbers would come out and it'd be very close to the rigorous formulation, but be able to be done in a third of the time computer-wise. So in that algorithm that you created, how long did it take to create that? Well, all in all, probably a little over a year. Wow, wow. And th th how, how big of a team did you have working we on We only it? had four guys. Four guys working four guys on, working on, on it. Year. Yeah. But it, it sped up the time. Two guys, two guys, uh, well, three engineers and the engineering aide. Wow. Yeah, and it was, and that made a big difference in the, um, in the ability of some of the other engineers to get their projects done on time or ahead of time because they could use this instead of using the more complicated, rigorous form. Wow, so now you're a team leader there. Yeah. Are you, how many engineers were you in charge of? At uh, that, on that particular one, I was in charge of um, three engineers and one engineering aide, I believe. Okay, and then when you left or before you left, what was, the most engineers you were in charge well, of? Well, the last thing we did, the last thing, well, the second from the last thing we did was put together a computer program that would uh, predict the thermal environment for the re-entering space shuttle. Okay. And the surface of the re-entering vehicle, and you could predict the heat load to any spot on there in order to tell how much insulation needed to be at any given spot. The idea was to make it thick enough to get the job done, but not overly thick to add so much weight to it that it would cause problems with launching. <laughs> right. So putting that together there, and I think we had about seven or eight engineers on that one. Wow. And, wow. Uh, what was the mood like when you uh, put the uh, man on the moon? Was that just? Oh, a big it was. It, they they had a thing called a splashdown party at the uh, the, the they rented the um, airport in Huntsville. Wow. Okay, hangars after hangars, and they had a party there 
but it was kind of funny because it was one of those things where the party's ready, but the guys haven't landed safely yet, yeah, so yeah. is it really going to be a party? <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, of course, when they did land safely, the place just went nuts. I mean, uh, you recall the Cardinals were, um, what's his name is saying, go crazy, folks, go crazy. Well, mm -hmm. they didn't have to say that. They went nuts. The place was just, the place was just like... Um, Rio at Carnival, okay, oh, wow. it was crazy, mm -hmm. and uh, of course that was that was the first success, and uh, and it, everything went absolutely perfectly. It couldn't couldn't have been any better. And when you consider the millions of parts that were put together and built by the guy who made the lowest bid, <laughs> and, and it still worked, uh -huh. that, that's fairly phenomenal. Actually, the the, the Saturn V, that that is probably. Even to date, probably the greatest engineering achievement of mankind, when wow. you think about it. To be able to shove seven and a half million pounds of vehicle basically into space, take a guy to the moon, drop him off, pick him up, bring him back, land him safely, that, that is, I, I mean, I can't think of any other engineering achievement that even comes close to that as far as, as um, you know, complexity uh, by any stretch. Yeah, that, that is really amazing, and especially with the technology that you're used to using. I mean, a lot of slide rules, a lot of figure out the problem. There was no manual. You had to start from scratch and think through a lot of these these problems, which I think it's a lost art in, in a lot of today's, uh, today's society. Well, you know, people look, people, you know, they, they, they have a problem and the first thing, well, let's look at Google, <laughs> you know, they always have the answer. Well, there was no Google and there were no answers. It was, it was something that had to be, the book had, was in the process of being written as we went along. Now, now there's a book. <laughs> now, now there's a book. Did you, were you there at Apollo 13 when they had that challenge there? Or? Um, let's see, I... I'm trying to think exactly when Apollo 13 was. Uh, it's been a long time ago, and, and it seems to me that we were there, but Apollo 13 was getting kind of toward the, the end. We were probably yeah. working on the shuttle at that time. Okay. And, uh, and then wasn't there, weren't there plans that you were working on, like a, another Saturn to go to Mars? Wasn't well, that, that, the was the, that was the last thing, and we, and we did some very, very preliminary work on using an augmented Saturn V uh, for a manned Mars landing, which probably could have been done by 1977 or 78 had things continued, but everything was pretty much cut short because of congressional funding for the space program just completely dropped off. And as a matter of fact, not even all the Saturn Vs that were scheduled to go to the moon went. The, the hmm. funding just stopped, and with the stopping of the funding, everything kind of fell apart, and this huge team of talent that we had been accumulated just kind of dissolved like a sugar cube in hot water, and <laughs> people just went their separate ways, and it just disappeared. So at that time, you had all of these engineers together, and you were thinking, you know, engineers are kind of a dime a dozen, and you know, everyone had the pick of really top engineers. So you decided to go back to school and 
Well, there were, there were literally thousands of unemployed engineers and, and jobs, especially jobs doing something like what you were doing, unless you wanted to go to work for the Russians, mm -hmm. they just weren't available, okay? Right. So it was, it was one of those things where you could probably get some, some much less lower paying job working for an oil company or something like that. Uh, but the lesson I learned, unfortunately, was that uh, I, I wanted to be self-employed. I didn't want to depend on congressional funding for my future. Yeah, yeah. So I went back to, I went back, we had saved a little bit of money, went back to medical school, had to take, I never had any biology courses in my life. I mean, I didn't know anatomy or comparative anatomy or biology or any of that stuff. Uh, those weren't really viewed as hard sciences at the mm -hmm. time. So I had to, before I applied to medical school, I had to go to night school at the University of Alabama in, in Huntsville to get enough of those credits to be able to apply to medical school. Wow. And then, uh, then took the MCAT test in Florence, Alabama and got accepted in a couple of places and decided to go back to St. Louis U because that's where all the family was in that area. Uh -huh. And spent uh, four years in medical school there and then a year of internship and two years of residency and by 77, I was a doctor <laughs> practicing in Alton. So you had your PhD and then you went back and got another PhD or another Well, it was uh, an doctor. MD. MD, yeah. MD, so. yeah. Yep. So, uh, you, 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 do people call you Dr. Dr. Birch? Or? <laughs> yeah, well, there's that song, Dr. Dr. Mr. M.D. or something like that, you know. But uh, now I'm just retired. I'm just the old guy up the block now. <laughs> <laughs> so, let me, let me ask you this. So, you started a, a doctor. You, you started a, a practice. Where was that? Dalton? Dalton, Illinois. Yep. Dalton, Illinois. And 30 years. You spent a while building that practice. You got that practice up to about how many... Well, from 77 until about uh, the, the early 90s, things were going very well. Uh, we started off with two guys, went to three and then four, and ultimately up to about 20 in the group. And, and around 1993, and, and just peculiar to Madison County, Illinois, there was a thing called the malpractice insurance crisis. And the malpractice insurance premiums were so high that um, primary care doctors and internists, which I was, uh, we were simply not able to be able to afford that and, and keep practicing. So we had actually made plans to move to Missouri, which was right across the river. Uh -huh. Well, the, we negotiated a little bit with the hospital and they ultimately bought the practice and they could afford the malpractice premiums, which we couldn't. And then from say 96 until 2007, we worked for them. And um, then I retired in 2007. Okay. I, I, I went to work there on 7777 and I quit on 7707. Oh, wow. <laughs> exactly 30 years. That sounds a little OCD and it probably is. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> so after you, after you retired, uh, the hospital wanted you to come back and do some... Right. I, I went over to the dark side and became <laughs> an administrator of sorts 
kind of a uh, chief medical officer and the whose job was to handle some of the physician quote unquote problems of which there are many. It's like herding cats. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, physicians are basically not team players. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that went on for a while. And uh, then, then the hospital itself was sold by the nuns to another um, outfit in Peoria called OSF. And when they took over, um, then I just kind of decided that I was done with that. Yeah, yeah. But even during, during the time I was the administrator, I was still, I mean, I had a lot of time on my hands and that's when I started getting involved with the high schools, uh, STEM programs and what have you. Yeah, well, let's, let's before we get into the high school and the STEM programs, because this is really mm -hmm. interesting, I want to go back to this little hiatus that you had. Oh, and yeah. you wrote a book about this. And <coughs> what, what is your book called? Well, the book call, book's called Matter Deep and Dangerous. And uh, it was written, I started to write that in about 1985, which was a couple of years over the 20-year limit that I was told to keep my mouth shut about what we were doing. Uh -huh. And um, it off and on over the next, I don't know, 10 years or so, I would write on it a little bit and then I'd put it away and I'd take it out and mess with it a little bit. And, and I actually have some, some of the, re, uh, the writes and rewrites and, and the first ones are done on a dot matrix printer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the Commodore 65 or 64 or whatever mm. it was. And, and of course, the, the later ones are done on a little bit more up-to-date printer. But um, it had been written and rewritten and many, many, many times until I got it to where I thought it was palatable. <laughs> now, in, in the novel, um, there, there's some fiction, but there's a lot of truth and, and, and actual real things that happened. And I'm not going to uh, explain what was, what was real and what, what was not, but it's a great book. I read it. I really enjoyed reading that mm -hmm. book. Um, can you tell me about your experience between, you know, that who was looking for you, what skill set did you have, and this was in the Vietnam era, or you mean, before Vietnam? Basically what you mean, how did I get into that mess? Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was, it was, I mean, it, I remember it very vividly because it was, it was a very disconcerting time. Uh, of course, at that time, it was, it was, it was uh, January of 1963, and America in general, and me in particular, were completely unaware of what was going on in Southeast Asia. I mean, everybody knew that the French had given up and D&B and Foo and blah, 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 and there were some monks burning themselves, and, but no one paid too much attention to it. And um, I had absolutely no interest or, or knowledge of it at all. And in uh, January of 63, which was about six months before I was supposed to graduate my undergraduate degree at St. Louis U in chemistry, I get this phone call from a guy saying he's from uh, an unnamed chemical company and uh, he would like to interview uh, for possible job opportunity. Uh -huh. okay? 
And I thought, well, you know, I'd really kind of planned on going to, to graduate school and go, you know, with the sights set on this aerospace thing. Working for a chemical company was not my idea of a glamorous future, yeah. okay? But I figured, doesn't hurt to talk. Uh-huh. So arranged a meeting and, and at the campus club at, uh, at St. Louis U in between classes. I went over there and met this guy and we sat down and were having a cup of coffee and, and horrors, a cigarette, <laughs> <laughs> politically incorrect cigarette. And it was unfiltered too, I might add. <laughs> um, but in any event, um, this guy has his little, I can, I can see him right now, he's got this little brown leather kind of soft briefcase with a zipper, okay, and he lays that on the table and uh, he introduces himself and, and he, he unzips this thing and, and he opens it up and, and the first thing I see sitting there um, in this briefcase are some rifle targets. And these have my name written on the bottom of them, you know. Oh. And it was like, what the hell is going <laughs> on? You know, this is really, you know, I don't know if anybody remembers the Rod Serling uh, Twilight Zone uh. thing, but you could hear the music in the background, you know, <laughs> like, what the hell is going on here? Well, as it turns out, uh, this guy is not from a chemical company at all. He's from the company, but not <laughs> a chemical company. Uh -huh. And listening to his story, it had went something like, um, apparently somebody got this bright idea of interdicting uh, supply routes in through Laos into Vietnam called the Ho Chi Minh Trail by getting some people who could shoot at long range and go over there and mess them up. And um, so keeping the supply lines down, keep, keep, keeping the supply lines. But, but, but we were just supposed to be like advisors. We were going to go over there and, and show people how to shoot so that they could do this. OK, at least that was the initial story. But then when you really think about that, that doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense because you can't teach people to shoot six, seven, eight hundred yards in a week or two. Okay, I mean, this is this is something that. How long did it take uh, you to? I mean, tell me about how they got the targets and 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 how well, did you get uh, shooting? Well, there there used to be a thing, or may still well be a thing, called the Department of Civilian Marksmanship, the DCM. It's a government organization that furnishes military firearms and ammunition to school to uh, clubs that engage in marksmanship. So it's the Department of Civilian Marksmanship. It's to encourage and, and tweak the skills of civilian marksmen. And they would furnish the, the rifles and they would furnish a lot of ammunition. It was all army surplus stuff. I kind of got into that somewhere around junior, senior, and high school. And then I carried on through it in college. Uh, we had this club that um, had a range over in St. Charles Bottoms, which is a, a, a river bottom area. We had like a thousand meter range out there where we'd have these targets that were like three or four feet in diameter. 
and uh, we would shoot at them with open sights. These weren't uh, these weren't telescopic sights. Nobody could afford that. We were shooting free stuff. So where were you shooting at? About 150 yards? We like were that? shooting at a thousand yards. A thousand yards? Well, a thousand meters, yeah. A thousand with, yards. With, with, with no glass. With no glass, right. And uh, we would do this, I mean, there were like, I don't know, there's probably like 12, 13 people who were involved in this. And the, the beauty of it was, is, you know, you could shoot all you wanted and, but all you wanted was usually about 100 or 150 rounds because after that your shoulder was a, you, like you'd been beaten with a ball bat. <laughs> so on the weekends you'd go down there and spend a couple hours shooting and, and at the end of the shooting you would take the target down. There were official targets. You would sign the target and have the target scored. And then if you massed, amassed uh, 20, 30 of these targets or so, then you would send them to the DCM and they would send you another case of ammunition. I mean, it was paradise. <laughs> Free stuff everywhere. <laughs> and um, so that, that's how we got into it. And uh, it was one of those things where you know, you've heard of the thing about the 10,000 hours to get good at something. Well, yeah. this was like the 10,000 rounds to get good at something. Uh -huh. And after a while, um, you know, you got to where you could uh, you could make hits at a thousand yards very regularly, and and that's what we did. That was kind of a pastime on Saturday Saturday mornings. You'd go over and, and do that. Well, anyway, this this DCM thing apparently they kept these targets, and when this guy was looking for people who could shoot, I guess he got the bright idea. Let's go to the DCM. <laughs> They've got targets. We know who can shoot. And that's apparently how they got my name. And that, that's, that is basically what happened. They, well, and, now, is, is the, the, the draft, you had to, I mean, Vietnam, the draft was coming. And uh, well, they, we didn't they, know it was coming. Okay, I mean, okay. it, was, it was really early in the game. Um, I, there were advisors over in Vietnam, I'm sure, I mean, under Kennedy, who was president at the time. And, uh, but this guy, he, he, he made a deal, but it, there was also kind of a threat attached to it, something along the lines of, you give us six months, we'll give you 10 grand cash. You not do this, we will draft you. You will give us two years, and you won't get any money. <laughs> well, uh -huh. it didn't. It didn't have to get get the pencil out to figure that one out. <laughs> so under duress, made the agreement to do that, and and he said, well, if we have a deal, you be at. There was this. Um, you're going to get a letter that says you're accepted into the graduate school at. Uh, University of Missouri in Columbia, and uh, gave me an address to be at, at a certain date after I graduated, and he said, we'll take it from there. Following directions, as I'm really pretty good at, I showed up at 613 Gentry Place on, at the right time, and um, they had a, it was student housing is what it was, off-campus student housing, and every Every little apartment had a padlock on the door, and I had a had a room and put all my junk in there and padlock and key and <clears throat> what have you. 
and there was a payphone on the second floor, and um, that thing started to ring, and I answered the phone. The guy said, uh, be ready out in front tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock. A car is going to come by and pick you up. And then the lady who owned the place, who was undoubtedly in on this thing, yeah. because she comes up and she says, you know, I'll watch your, I'll watch your car, and, um, you know, I'll keep an eye on your room, and we want you to write a couple of letters, undated, to your folks, telling you what a wonderful time you're having in Columbia, and uh, you know you'll probably see them around Christmas time, and blah blah blah, and uh, leave them on the leave them on the desk. So I did it, and apparently um, she was going to mail these things at intervals that she mm -hmm. seemed appropriate, and deemed appropriate, and off we went and drove out to the. Um, the airport, Columbia Airport, and this twin-engine Beechcraft. Oh, by the way, that, that it's the first time I ever flew in an airplane. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we're in this, this twin-engine Beechcraft pulls up, and, and uh, the guy in the car drops me off out there, and I get on this, this really kind of a small airplane, and there's already one guy sitting in there, and there's the pilot, of course. And there's two guys sitting in there, and I think they were from Omaha or someplace, if memory serves. But anyway, we take off and we fly down to Little Rock, and we land, and we pick up a fourth guy, and then we fly on to um, Fort Hood, Texas, and which probably qualifies as being the armpit of the nation, okay? <laughs> uh, not a pleasant place. It, it was really hot and dusty and crappy. But anyway, we land there and uh, get on a bus and go to a barracks type thing. And over the next two, maybe three weeks, they're introduced into jungle lore. Uh -huh. uh, things you can eat, things that are going to eat you, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> Um, then, of course, we had to do the practice shooting uh, a couple times a day, and, but they had a really, really nice selection of firearms, and they had good glass, and it was, it was, uh, it was really much more sophisticated than the open sight World War II rifles that we had been shooting in the in St. Charles, these were these were really nice, nice firearms, with good glass, and uh, of course, performance goes up phenomenally when you have yeah. stuff like that. I mean, we were getting to where uh, they they would have these um, metal targets, and I guess to a certain extent, it was to kind of uh, keep our consciences softened a little bit because first they were like they were like metal cows and donkeys and stuff that were moving across and then you would shoot these things with with um, at a thousand yards and they were big I and mean, they were life-size yeah mm -hmm. and you know when you hit them they would make a noise you couldn't hear it but they would score it but then ever so gradually they changed from from animals to humans <laughs> that were kind of walking along and uh, of course, it's a um, you know it's 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 a matter of math. It's you know how fast is the bullet going? How long, how long is it going to take the bullet to get there? How far is the guy going to move if he's running? 
Um, you know, if he's running, he's going six miles an hour. If he's walking, he's going three or four miles an hour. How many feet per second is that? How far ahead of him do you have to shoot? This kind of thing. And then and, you got wind. And, and, and wind. And then earth spinning. <laughs> and everything. <laughs> and bugs down your neck along with hot shell casings. There's a number of distractions. <laughs> but after a while, it's kind of like shooting baskets at basketball. You get, you pick up the feel for it, and pretty soon you're just zipping them right in there. <laughs> now I see, you know, you got a lot of framed stuff in your office here where we're sitting, and I see some uh, playing cards that are split in half. So uh, <laughs> for a marksman shooting those, how, how far out were you shooting when you split those things in half? 100 yards, that was 100 yards. 100 yards and you're splitting playing cards. In half. But see, it, it's, it's, that's kind of deceptive, though, because mm -hmm. the, bullet, the bullet is a third of an inch wide. Okay. So the card on edge, all you have to do is hit a third of an inch or a third of an inch. So basically, a little more than a half an inch is your, is your corridor. Uh -huh. <laughs> so if you can keep it within a half an inch, you'll split the card every time. Mm -hmm because the bullet can be anywhere in that half inch range and still split the card. Wow. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's not like you have to hit the card head on with the point of the bullet. You just have to hit it with some part of it. <laughs> so now you're at the, the camp and you're, you're, you've got your firearms, you've got them down, you've got this practice and everything else. Then they decide to fly you over to, to Asia. Tell me about landing there and what it was like there. Well, we, we went by bus from Fort Hood across. I mean, do you have any idea how long it takes to get across Texas in a bus? <laughs> a long I mean, time. you got to pack a couple of lunches. I mean, that is one damn big state, okay? And then, of course, you have to go across, you know, Arizona and New Mexico to get to California, the Fort Ord. We flew out of Fort Ord on a 707. So my second flight, my first airplane flight was in a twin-engine Beechcraft. My second flight was in a 707 jet, which was significantly larger <laughs> and more comfortable, I might add. And we landed in Guam to refuel, I think. I don't know. I mean, they don't tell you what. We're landing in Guam. You get out, you walk around a little bit. Um, I don't think it was the real touristy part of Guam from what mm -hmm. I could see. So then we flew on into um, Chulai, the airport at Chulai in, in South Vietnam. And then from there we took um, a truck north to a little town called Tom Key. And then we were kind of on the northwestern border of town. There were just a bunch of Quonset huts and some powder blue helicopters and us. <laughs> and that's, that was kind of the base of operations right there. And uh, that's where I, I picked up the habit of drinking beer over ice because these pallets of beer would sit out in the tropical sun for days or weeks at a time. <laughs> and uh, there was no cold beer, but there was ice. So you pour the ice over the cold beer, you drink the beer, and then you put the ice in your hat and let the cold water run down the back of your neck. <laughs> Heaven. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So what were some of the, you know, when you first went out to uh, keep the supply lines down, what was that like? Well, you'd, you'd mount up in the helicopter, the, uh, the um, of course, they all knew where, I mean, you didn't have any idea where you were, the exact location where you were going. I mean, you knew what it was going to be, but, you know, you didn't know it was three miles north of whatever. You just got in the helicopter and they would land you at the base of um, kind of a mountainous type area. And then the guy who was the leader of the operation uh, led us up the hill to the crest of the mountain, which then overlooked a little valley. And then there across the way, there was another cliff or whatever it is. And that's where the trail was along. And it was about six, 700 yards across to that and we were sitting there waiting, waiting for people to come along carrying bundles and bicycles and, and all kinds of stuff on the, uh, that was a branch of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Hmm. And you, I mean, sometimes you'd wait for a couple of days and nothing. And then all of a sudden you, know, you take turns watching and then somebody would be showing up. It was kind of interesting because there was always this one guy whoever he was, he would show up and he'd kind of walk down the trail and look around and then he would walk back. And then if apparently he thought everything was clear, then the whole chain would start coming one right after another. It'd be sometimes 10, 15, 20, 30 of them. But you always waited until they all got in view and then half of the rifle team would start at one end and the other half would start at the other end, and you'd work your way toward the middle so nobody got away. <laughs> so were there any big explosions? or? Well, anything? occasionally you could hit something that, that uh, lit the place up a little bit or blow out a chunk of roadway or whatever. But uh, they were carrying all kinds of stuff. I mean, ordnance of various and sundry varieties. I don't know. But after you sit there and mess that whole thing up, because we were not really, we weren't what you call combat people. So after we had our little attack, then we would pack our junk up and head down the hill and get the hell out of Dodge before mm -hmm. the bad guys showed up with guns, you know. Mm -hmm. And we repeated that a number of times if the weather allowed. Um, sometimes it would just be raining like hell and you just Tragically, we had to stay home. <laughs> but um, there were a couple of instances where there was this one instance where apparently somebody got some intel that some uppity up was going to be getting off of a boat at a pier along the river. And we set up in that like two days before he was supposed to get there. And we're sitting there under these tarps, sweating like pigs for two days, not really moving very much above this river channel. And there was this little village over there, and there was this little wooden pier built out on the river. And um, pretty soon this boat starts chug, chug, chugging up there. And the, the, the directions were, do not shoot the first guy that gets off the boat. The three that come after him, those are the three that go down. But don't shoot the first guy. Who knew? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Somebody knew something, but I didn't know anything. So sure enough, this the boat lands and the first guy gets off and they're walking down the gangplank type thing and three in a row and bop, 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 bop. And the three guys are in the water 
and we're heading down the hill. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, who it was, why it was, haven't got a clue. <laughs> this, uh, so after you, you were over there, eventually they, uh, um, did you ever have any firefighter that ever get hairy, you know, they no. ever shoot back again? Or? Well, normally the idea was to be far enough away. There's an old saying that distance and darkness are your friend, mm -hmm. okay? And the idea was to to stay away and do things at a distance. But there was an episode um, where we were interdicting from above a a small convoy of of boats coming down one branch of a river. We were right at the Y where the two rivers joined to form a larger river. Well, the first group came down and they were just regular boats and we shot the hell out of them. But we didn't know that coming down the other branch was a group of really hostile people <laughs> and they knew where we were then and there was all kinds of crap coming up our way. I mean, we had sandbags deflating right in front of us from the multiple hits. So that was, that was kind of exciting. Didn't want to do that again, okay? That, um, could have gotten killed there. Yeah, <laughs> not good. That was not good. We had some older guys with us there, and they had some some. They had a heavy barrel fifty, and uh, these guys really took their killing seriously. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they were up there. They were chewing the hell out of them with that fifty, and of course, after about ten seconds, you're completely deaf. You can't hear anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it just. But uh, that issue, a few of them got by and got downriver, but not very many. <laughs> and the ones that did probably had soiled underwear, <laughs> be my guess. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you eventually did that. You wrote all about this in the book and then, and then some more. And, yeah, well, uh, I kept a little diary mm -hmm. of things as I went along. And... Uh, at the end, then suddenly, just one day, they, they they came in and said, you know, pack up. This this is over with. We're not doing this anymore. And uh, we're going to give you your money, take you back to the States, and be done. So they and give it, you a nice briefcase full of cash? Briefcase full of cash. <laughs> Looked like the Bobby Green Lease ransom. <laughs> tens and twenties. $10,000 in tens and twenties. We did a lot of money back then. And there were two other things they gave us. They gave, they gave us a, a card. Uh, with a phone number on it, should there be any problems, which they didn't really define what a problem might be. Mm -hmm. And and they, they told us, do not put the money in the bank, okay? <laughs> they, apparently they didn't want a paper trail. Do you know if it was the, you know, what branch of government? Was it the CIA or was it the... That was the assumption that yeah. it was, but they didn't use, they didn't use initials very much. You know? Yeah. Just the guy with the money. The guy with the money. So went back home and uh, went, well, they eventually made their way back to Columbia, Missouri. And and here it is, I don't know, was it September, late September? No, no, it wasn't. It was early September because we had just gotten there. And, and it turns out that the president of Vietnam, South Vietnam, was assassinated on September 1st. And we thought, hmm. 
You know. Was he the guy getting off the boat? No, he wasn't. I don't <laughs> think so. And, and, and then about three weeks later, Kennedy gets killed. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, whoa. <laughs> and no, I was not on the grassy knoll. Okay. <laughs> just thought I'd answer that question right up front. But, um, and I had a lot of time and a lot of money to waste because I couldn't go. I mean, school had already started back where I wanted to go to graduate school. And uh, so I just sat around and drank beer and audited some classes and put in the time. And then the following academic year, I started at St. Louis U in the graduate school. Hmm. And about three years after that, I had my degree and went to work for, for NASA. Oh, fascinating. Now, today what you're doing, you're, you're retired, but you do a lot of volunteer work or a lot of work as uh, a teacher at what, Calhoun High School and Marquette High School. Is that in correct? Alton, right. In well, Alton. Marquette High School in Alton is where I went to high school. So okay. that was the first place I went and got involved in their STEM program where we were doing things like the uh, trebuchet contest at Lewis and Clark and the in Boeing in, in uh, St. Louis puts on that um, glider competition and, and we uh, participate in that because um, engineering is really what I like to do. The doctor thing was out of necessity. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm back in doing that, and then when I got got out of the hospital thing altogether, then I branched up into the uh, Calhoun High School, public high school, and I'm doing the STEM thing there. STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. Okay. And also teaching the uh, Advanced Placement Chemistry there too. So it keeps me busy. Now, on the Boeing glider competition, mm -hmm. how many schools participate in that? Well, it's, from year to year, it's different, but there's probably over, a little over 100, and each one fields three, four, five teams. So there's heavy competition. There are three categories. Uh, there's the straight glider, longest distance, straightest flight, and then there's the second category, which is the flying wing glider that carries some balls. And the third one is the glider bomber that drops a ping pong ball in a designated area and then keeps flying straight. So you can enter any, any one of those three that sparks your interest. So it's, it's a pretty competitive thing. You've got it's extremely competitive, yeah. And have, it's held have, at the Washington U Fieldhouse and that's, that's where the flights occur. But there's more to it than that because the, the, the kids have to in their teams, they have to put together a presentation because the uh, Boeing actually sends engineers to the high school uh, so their kid, the kids can ask them questions. And then the kids have to put together a presentation and go, they go to Boeing and present their idea and their glider and a video of their glider flying as to why Boeing should buy their glider. And it's, it's kind of like real engineering, you know. Mm -hmm. Our design is the best because. So they got to present and all the things like um, wing loading and lift and Reynolds numbers and all this kind of stuff is in the presentation. And that's all graded. And then finally, the flight is the final part of the competition is to 
how well the thing actually performed. And um, Marquette has won, let's see, they have won Division One once, they have won Division Two and Three. They've won each division one time. Wow. And, and Calhoun has won the first division twice. Now, but not the same year. Have, had they ever won a division before you started helping them? They had not entered into the competition before I started helping them. So they'd never, that was something they'd that never was done it before. No. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's difficult as a teacher because you don't want to do it for them. You've got to get them to do the, do the work. So what are some of your uh, thoughts on how to teach kids how to, do their own work and guide them down the right path. So well, that, that is, that's the crooks of the matter. I mean, as I tell them, I said, look, I know how to build one of these and I'm not going to do it, okay? Mm -hmm. The idea is for you to build it. Now, I will, I will try to keep you from going too far off the path leading to disaster, but you're going to have to figure out what you're going to do and how you're going to build it and, and what have you. I'll try to keep you from making errors and that kind of thing, but I'm not building it for you. And they ask, well, what should I do here and what should I do there? I said, what do you think? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, put it together, we'll see if it works, you know, that kind of thing. Because, you know, human nature is if, if you can ask Google and Google can tell you that's all you need to do, right? Yep. <laughs> well, no, that's not right. That isn't the way it really works in the real world. So. You know, if you got a question, you have to show at least some indication that you have put some thought into answering the question before you ask me. Because <laughs> it's, uh, like I said, I, I can build it, okay? I've done it before. I'm not doing it again. We've covered a lot of ground, a lot of territory, uh, from NASA to uh, working with students to uh, doing some James Bond stuff over in Vietnam to um, becoming a physician. It's been an interesting life. So what, what words of wisdom would you like to pass on to uh, our listeners for success? If you want to be successful, what is the secret? That's interesting because I, I gave a commencement address one time a number of years back about this very thing. and. And what, what it boils down to is to be a success, you've got to have three things. You have to have the opportunity, okay, you have to have the ability, uh -huh. and you have to have the ambition to do it. And, um, you know, if you have those three things, you can, you can be successful. Um, ambition can make up for a lack of ability to a certain extent. Uh, nothing can make up for the lack of opportunity because if you're someplace where you have no opportunities, you're really going nowhere. <laughs> but if you have those three things, and most people in the United States have those, okay, right. uh, and so there's no reason not to be a success. But what what but what what does that actually mean? Well, what it means is that you go to work or wherever it is doing every day, and it's and you want to go. You enjoy doing what you're doing. You can make a living at doing what you enjoy doing. That's my definition of success. <laughs> Very good, Larry. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, this has been a great, great uh, podcast. And tell people where they can get your book and about your what your book is again. Well, it's on Amazon. Um, 
and uh, the name of it is uh, Matter Deep and Dangerous. Is that from Shakespeare? Yes, it is. It's a quote from Shakespeare about, uh, it, it's uh, part of the quote. Uh, it has something to do with, and now I will read to you from uh, a secret book of Matter Deep and Dangerous. And it has to do with the diary in the book. Someone finds the diary and starts reading it. Uh -huh. And that's where you have the reading from the, reading from the uh, book of Matter Deep and Dangerous. That's oh, where it comes from. Excellent. So everyone, go out and buy that book if you want to find out more about uh, uh, Larry. Thanks again, Larry. And uh, until next time, this is the Bond Guy. Signing off.